Welcome to GeoThoughts Talks. I'm Drew Bush. In GeoThoughts Talks, we bring you lectures from our team, partners, and collaborators on topics important to the GeoThink audience. GeoThink Summer Institute may have just concluded, but for those of you who missed it, here are three talks to remember. Our third talk is from GeoThink researcher Victoria Fast, a former GeoThink graduate student who is now an assistant professor at the University of Calgary in the Department of Geography. In it, she posed questions about accessibility and how smart cities may or may not benefit those who are most in need. About smart city transformations. Uh, this is a question I've really considered in my own research. You know, what, what is a smart city? What makes a city smart? And how do we make a city smarter, right? It's not one of these, you're not smart, and then all of a sudden you're smart. It's one of these transitions uh, and, and requiring significant transformation. And as we saw from the last presentation, it's really about kind of continuous innovation. And so I'm just gonna kind of step back and take a different perspective on this transformation, looking at it through a social justice and participation lens. Uh, and with a particular focus on a case study that means a lot to me, smart accessibility. Uh, so the first thing is uh, really what makes a city smart? You know, we're, we're kind of talking about this big abstract kind of smart city stuff, but what actually makes a city smart? What do you guys think makes a city smart? Efficiency. Efficiency, okay, but efficiency is this like vague concept. What, um, so what kind of tangible things makes a city smart? Bike paths. Okay, bike paths. To be able to react to the needs of the citizens in life. Okay, reacting to the needs of citizens. Okay, great. Uh, we can discuss a some sensors, right? Like a sensor sensors. Just censoring everything. Let's just put sensors everywhere and check out some cool stuff. No, that's a, a very important part and actually that was one of the Data, data, big data, small data, smart data, volunteer data, all this data, right? And adaptability, adaptability uh, for the services to be adapted to the environment, to the people. Yeah, yeah, so really kind of this on-demand idea of, of how we're running and managing city services. Uh, but it's interesting when you look at a city like this, what city is smarter than another city? We don't, we don't see that, we don't know. Um, one really good start to what makes a city smart, in this case, is $140 million. $140 million can potentially make a city smart, or maybe not. Uh, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, and we just heard, uh, the city of Columbus, Ohio, won the Department of Transportation. Um, uh, smart City Challenge, uh, it was $40 million. They ended up with $140 million total when they got uh, some matching funds and things like that. Uh, but I really love that this is their tagline, that smart is just the start. You know, this money is the start of the transformation. Uh, and, and what does that um, make it? So um, shifting to a Canadian context, um, you know, what... What makes Toronto smart? Like, what do you what do you see in Toronto? Are there any? How many of you guys are from Toronto? What do you use, Lacey? What do you use to make or, uh, that that helps you live in a smarter Toronto? Uh, open data. Okay, open data. That's a really important one. Anybody else? What do you use to make your Toronto smart or, or uh, making the most of your smart Toronto? 
Just open data, that's it, yeah. Transit app, good. That's exactly, I actually took this picture out of the window of an airplane, that's pretty cool, right? I use Toronto as my example only because I really wanted to use this photo. Yeah, iPhone, right? Is that a smart city thing, like having my iPhone taking a photo? It's probably geotagged or something, but yes, this app, right? Uh, is Rocketman still the, the transit app of choice in Toronto? Is it, is it evolved yet? Uh, okay. Uh, interestingly, uh, the main app was developed. Uh, the Toronto Transit Commission really does not have tons of money they're throwing around. And if anything, they're cutting back and cutting back as much as possible. They don't have the money to to develop um, this, right? If you wanted to develop an app in-house, you have to have a vision team, you come up with a vision, then you have to have programmers and designers. I mean, this is like a two-year process costing millions of dollars. Instead, they waved around a couple thousand dollars and said, hey, we have an app building competition. Who wants to build us a really good app? So for pennies, they got an app um, that's really valuable. Uh, and so, but again, there, there's a lot of challenges in this, and that's one thing I want to get into. But um, kind of this, this is just kind of Googling what a smart city is. And it's interesting to see from the original kind of swath of Googled images what uh, a regular city looks like, right? Here in comparison, here's a regular city. Uh, and then we, we kind of evolved to this smart city, right? It's, it's networked, it's censored, it's a little cartoonish. Um, and kind of a general definition, and there are a lot that we can go by, is that uh, smart cities really revolve around internet and communications technologies. Uh, they make things better, right? We're enhancing quality, we're reducing costs, and we're improving everybody's lives, uh, is what they're saying. But um, this is a very technocratic decision, uh, a very technocratic perspective. Um, and, and full disclosure, I have been accused of being a technocratic far too many times in my life. Um, I'm too positive and I'm too much of a technocrat. There's a new uh, Canada research chair at the University of Calgary who her and I are studying the same thing, smart cities through a social justice lens. And she accuses me of being technocratic. And, and I think I am, but looking at it from this perspective, uh, I think there's more, more we need to look at, not just this kind of build it bigger and better and badder, right? Uh, the, the social justice side is really important to that. Um, the site that's not so much as dominated by big business. And so I'm part of a research group at the University of Calgary, and what we're studying is the social and environmental implications of smart cities. And we're doing it from a global comparative research perspective. So we're actually comparing uh, global cities across the world, really trying to get representation from the global north and the south, um, and from kind of all levels of development. And it's interesting to see what these challenges are and being faced on each city. And on that, I am, uh, I am the chair or the lead of the uh, Social Justice and Participation uh, subcommittee of this research group. Uh, we also have, sub there are five subcommittees, one's on risk, one's on sustainability, one's on governance, social justice and participation, and um, one that probably really matters, but I don't remember what it is right now. Uh, and so this is really kind of what's framing my line of inquiry. Um, you know, really what does it mean for the, what do smart cities mean for the daily lives of citizens and who gains from this? Uh, and how are the policies created? Are they justified? Who are they fostered by? Um, by whom? And how do they impact social justice? How do they impact urban democracy, citizenship, and really the right to the city? 
And I think this is a question that the Cisco and the IBMs, right, the leaders in smart cities are not asking. They're not asking, how do we build more just cities typically? They're saying, how can we sell more smart cities things? So I think from an academic, from the position that I'm in, I can really, uh, really look into these things, right? I, I don't have no, I have no big aspirations or any aspirations of starting uh, a big business. You know, I'm, I'm an academic and I'm happy to be here. And I, and I think that's a very privileged position to be in. Uh, and, I, and I'm happy to do it. Uh, and so one thing we need to consider uh, in smart cities, um, in this case, or I'll give you one example of kind of smart cities, um, for a transportation app, Uber, right? To me, that would be another smart, like a, a practical smart cities evolution, right? A smart cities technology. But what do you need to take Uber? Smartphone, smartphone. exactly. You need a smartphone. And, uh, Pamela, how many people in Toronto do you say have smartphones? We don't know. We know about 93,000-ish, about 100,000 can get online. Okay. But that could be at a library, right? So that doesn't quite count. Exactly. Uh, what else do you need to, uh, to have access to this whole Uber world? Credit card. Yes, two things that... Um, not everybody has, and, and maybe you have a credit card but not a smartphone, maybe you have a smartphone and not a credit card. I mean, these are really big barriers to this kind of new world of, of uh, ride sharing and ride hailing uh, that I, I think many people aren't considering, right? Uber has just made it easier to get around the city, but I think there are a lot of problems uh, related to that. Um, and so from a user point of view, not all users can access Uber. And this is just one of many technologies that are designed this way. Uh, now, Car2Go has this new app. You use your Car2Go app to get in. And again, that's a, a smartphone thing. So you might not have enough, uh, you know, it might be more economical for you instead of buying your own cars to use smart car or Car2Go. Um, but again, uh, same barriers are being faced. But now if we shift, not just from a user point of view, but if we shift to a data point of view uh, in this on the data side, uh, we don't have these people, there are people who don't have access to the Uber service, but now they're also no longer in our data set, right? They're, not, they're no longer being collected. They're no longer kind of part of this new world of streaming data that we're, we're, we're making real-time decisions that's connected to the citizens um, because we have their data. So not only do they not get Uber, but they also aren't included in kind of these stats that we're collecting from the smart city to make the city smarter to make decisions based on citizens, right? So it's really this kind of intertwined problem um, that from the user uh, and from the data perspective um, is, is really challenging. Um, and actually going back to Teresa's point earlier, uh, one thing I heard which was really helpful uh, to understand kind of how we become data. Basically, if you're not paying for the service, you are the service, right? We're collecting data and, and streaming it and, and adding to that, so we become kind of the service. 
so from my perspective, um, there are so many things that we can look at. There are so many things that we can study and so many different perspectives of kind of smart cities has done this really good, but they haven't spent any time in this area yet. Uh, and so one thing I really care about uh, is using smart cities uh, to create a built environment that's accessible to everybody regardless of ability. And to me, that is the cornerstone to a just and inclusive society. But smart cities aren't quite there yet. And so that's why I want to use this next little bit to track the evolution of smart cities and what that means. So um, this is kind of a really rough idea. There's probably more I can include and exclude here, but it's really some early days on these thoughts. But thinking about the transformation from smart cities. Uh, I don't know what... Um, I don't know if it's dumb cities to smart cities. I, I put traditional accessibility um, rather than um, dumb. Is there a better word? Do you guys have a better word? What's a city that's not smart? Traditional. Traditional? You like it then? No, I like it. Yeah. Okay, traditional. Okay, we're, we're going with traditional cities. Uh, and so I kind of broke it down to a, a different uh, sector. So I have government community, social enterprise, and then this opportunity for uh, better innovation um, and kind of as we progress to more smart accessibility. And so in this instance, on the government perspective, uh, Ontario is really great. They have the Access for Ontarians with Disability Act uh, that was uh, created in 2005. Uh, actually, this is one instance where the US seems to be light years ahead of us. They have the Americans with Disabilities Act, and they've had that since 1990, surprisingly. There is no federal Canadians with Disabilities Act. Uh, and yes, to go, to go into a little PC moment, a little politically correct moment, um, the proper way to uh, uh, refer to uh, somebody with disabilities is it's a person with a disability. It's not a disabled person. The person isn't disabled. They're a person, um, and then they, but they happen to have a disability. So it's a person, person with a disability is kind of the politically correct way of saying that. Uh, okay, so that's one side of it, right? That's the government legislation. Unfortunately, the um, Access for Ontarians with Disability has very low compliance. Actually, painfully low compliance. I think it's like hovering around 20% right now. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the next thing, the next kind of option for government is this idea of open data, right? They put more data out, we can kind of create apps, we can under create services. And, uh, and really support helping people get around a city. Um, but um, for those of you who have looked, maybe Montreal's better. I haven't checked out the Montreal data set, but I know federally, uh, provincially, and the Calgary open data, there's no data on accessibility. Uh, the best I found was pedestrian crossings that have the, the auditory signals. And there's no data on curb cuts. There's no data on accessible routes. Uh, it's really kind of a completely missing area in the open data sphere. Have you guys seen anything related to that in Montreal? Mm -hmm. Just no. We have some basic stuff in the house. Basic. Okay. That's about it. Yeah, right? It's like this huge missing area. Like, I'm really surprised this isn't something that governments have picked up on more. I know the federal government is trying to work to uh, national legislation, but there's just so many missing pieces in between there. So that's really the government side. They're not really doing that much for us uh, right now. 
Uh, and then we switch to kind of a community perspective, uh, and there's the Active Neighborhoods Project. How many of you guys have heard of Active Neighborhoods? It's really just about kind of finding ways. Right now, our cities are, are really designed towards cars and to, to prefer car use. Um, and so there's this emerging area on active, active neighborhoods, active commutes, um, complete streets that are really just about uh, making it more friendly to get around either walking or biking. And so part of this, it's a project through the Toronto Centre for Active Transportation, um, Active Neighbourhoods uh, and uh, Sustainable Calgary. And so they do accessibility audits, which is really great for civic engagement, right? They go to a community and they say, hey, we're going to walk through this community and we're going to get as many people as we can and by as many people as they can, usually 20, 30, 40 or 50 show up. If 100 show up, that would be a huge deal. And they walk through the neighborhood and they check off accessible or not accessible routes. And so this is what a map looks like. But if I was in a wheelchair and needed to get around, this map isn't really going to help me navigate my city, right? It's not going to help me figure out which way I can go or can't go, right? But this, the, the trade-off, though, is that, that engagement piece, right? It engaged the community. It got people out of their house and standing with members of their community and actually talking about accessibility. So this is really important. Although the data isn't quite smart, uh, I think the whole process is, is very beneficial for people who are involved. Like, the community engagement part, even if it is a small number of people, I think is so incredibly valuable. But it's just not quite enough to like move us to that edge towards smart accessibility. Uh, so a good friend of mine, Mayan Ziv, uh, decided she has muscular dystrophy. She's been in a wheelchair her whole life. Uh, and she just got so tired of calling up a restaurant and saying, are you accessible, right? That's the only way you can find out. If your friends are going out at night, how do you, how do you know you can go where they're going? You call them up. Well, the number of times that's happened uh, to her and myself where I call and say, hey, are you accessible? They're like, yeah, sure, come on down. You know, I get in there, I sit down with my poppy, we order a glass of wine, we order an appetizer, and he's like, okay, I need to use the washroom. Where's your washroom? Downstairs. Don't worry, I'll just push it. Like, yeah. it's, that's not going to happen, right? It's just not, you know, and, and so we usually make a joke of it, like, don't worry, he doesn't have those needs. But he does, and then we have to leave and go somewhere else. I mean, it's really problematic. So Mayan did this um, at her master's work in communication and digital media at Ryerson University, uh, but from a really non-geographic perspective. But really kind of um, her, her issue is why, why she wanted to start it was to increase compliance to the Access for Ontarians with Disabilities, because there's just not enough buildings, not enough things that are accessible. Uh, and I think it's brilliant. It's helping kind of move it forward. Right now there are, gosh, like well over 10,000 contributions on the map. Um, as you can tell, Toronto has the most. It really suffers from distance decay here, right? Um, Mayan is the epicenter of this uh, access now. And then anything kind of out from there, you'll notice, you know, we have 4,000 contributions in kind of the GTA. Uh, we come out here to Alberta and we have 30, right? So. Suffering from that distance decay, I think it's getting there, right? It's starting the conversation. People are going out and having uh, accessibility hacks where they just get together and they start walking new neighborhoods and they're mapping them. Um, some really cool things. I really encourage you, check out your neighborhood, um, add some pins to access now. The pins are either accessible, partially accessible, patio, or not accessible. Uh, and so 
So partially accessible would be typically like a step up to a bar area. So maybe somebody in a wheelchair can't go up to a bar or they're accessible, but they don't have the buttons to actually automatically open up the doors. Um, so it's somewhat navigable. Um, if, if the bathrooms are not accessible though, but everything else is, that's not partial. Like that is a full stop, yeah. not accessible. Uh, and uh, again, so there's some really great contributions here. Uh, actually, just the way this map works, it looks like Arkansas is just like getting a big diss right there. <laughs> I mean, there's only one contribution in that area, so that one hasn't been um, aggregated. Uh, it's nothing to Arkansas. Uh, but so now let's say we look in this Montreal area, and now we have 38 posts on the island. I mean, that's not enough if, if any of you had an accessibility concern and you're like, geez, I want to figure out how to navigate my city. That's still not enough information to figure that out. Uh, and then another challenge uh, with that, so it's kind of not enough to help us navigate the city, right? It's, um, it's a really great project, but I'm, I almost want to say it's like verging on tokenism. Like, I feel like we can do so much more. Uh, and and it, this is part of the transformation, like this is the start of it. This is the start to moving towards smart accessibility, right? There was no data prior to this. There was nothing online. Uh, to start it out, we actually mined uh, restaurant guides to see if they even had accessibility, like went through pieces of paper um, and added those in some of our accessibility hacks. Um, but it's a start um, and it's a really important start. Um, there's another one also called Wheelmap. Um, from a geographic perspective, I really like this one. They already have all these places loaded uh, based on kind of a global data set. And then it's up to somebody to go in and then click on it and indicate accessible, not accessible, or partially accessible. Again, this is not enough information for us to travel around Montreal uh, and to give somebody uh, who has a disability the confidence to move around a city without worrying about these barriers. Like, it's just, that's not the solution. And from a geographic perspective, in addition, we think of, uh, you know, this is all point data. But how many of you guys are from a geography background? How many of you get GIS and spatial analysis, right? You, so a lot of you get this whole points, lines, and polygon thing, right? We're looking at points here. But from a geographic perspective, there's so much more we can understand, right? Like even from going from points to, to roots, right? To lines and understanding lines. Well, um, so now I'm looking at innovation. So this is my poppy. Uh, my dad, we, uh, when I was in Toronto, we'd go on walking and rolling dates. I'm pretty certain we covered the entire city, at least the parts of it that were accessible. Uh, but in this case, so this is the lines thing, right? We're, we're traveling along and all of a sudden they close the sidewalk and, uh, and he has nowhere to go. So where does he go? In the middle of the street. This is Victoria Street. We try to stay off Young Street because we feel like we're kind of an obstacle. And so we, we move to the back streets as much as possible. Uh, but still, this is, this is really problematic. He's out here. One time we went, to, um, we went to the Pride Parade in Toronto. We're walking down Queen Street. We're on the sidewalk. And at 6 o'clock, they, uh, they were officially approved to like roll out their outdoor patios, shutting down the street, and it becomes a big street party. So we're walking and rolling down the street, and, uh, and all of a sudden, it was like 5.59, like a snap, and all the crews from the bars come out, and their, their outdoor patios are out in about two minutes. 
right? So they, they, they open up their doors, they pull out their, their bars, right? So they can serve alcohol within them. They pull out their patio furniture, they roll out their carpets. Me and my poppy are standing there like, we literally had nowhere to go. Like they, in that two minutes, they rolled everything out. And I mean, these were crews of like every single restaurant uh, staff. And so we went over to the one side and we said, hey guys, like we can't really get out here, right? We're stuck on the sidewalk, literally, because there wasn't a curb cut between the two spots they put up for us. They're like, oh, sorry, we already put this out. Like it's, okay, let's, you know, hey guys, do you think we can, oh man, no, this was, somebody's gotta let us out. Like it, it, it was necessary. Somebody eventually let us out, but it's just one of those things that we don't think of. And I think there's really a lot more to understand um, with these transient obstacles, right? Temporary obstacles, but also uh, routes and what doors to go in. I love this situation too. This was another time we were in Young and Dundas Square, kind of going around the corner. Um, they set up the things, people could walk through, but it wasn't big enough to get the chair through. But if you guys can see like the look of this person's face, it's a little blurry here, but he's like, oh man, sucks to be you. Like that is exactly this look. This guy's looking back like, oh geez, you're kind of hooped there. Right, another one of these situations where you're just not thinking about accessibility and not thinking about people who have accessibility needs. And so in this research, I think there's a lot of, in this area, I think there's a lot of room for more innovation. So in this kind of transformation from traditional accessibility to smart accessibility, I don't think we're kind of down to the bottom yet. I don't think we've actually hit this smart accessibility or as smart as it could be. I think there's so much room for innovation, so much room for growth. And in Mayan's example, I mean, starting that app, that's her job now. That's her social enterprise, it's a business. Because it's a business, unfortunately, the data aren't open, which is a little disappointing, um, despite my encouragement. But I understand like that's her business and her livelihood and her passion. Uh, and in that work she's doing, she's raising incredible awareness. But um, I mean, what a great business. You graduate and you're like, hey, this is a problem I really care about. And because of smart city technology, she was able to do something about it and turn it into something. And, and I really think it's moving in the right direction, but we're not there. Like my goal um, here, Rob earlier was talking about this idea of um, you really stop thinking about it or when it becomes embedded, when it becomes ubiquitous. And so here, you know, this is my, my route to, to get to, I, don't, I, I wasn't even thinking I showed you guys. Yeah, that's where I live. Uh, this is my route to get to my office at work. Uh, yeah, isn't that very Calgary? Like, I live on Branch View Muse. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like the stereotypical Calgarian. I live in Ranch Lands. I live on the Muse. It's really as entertaining as it sounds. <laughs> and so, uh, but to really get this to be ubiquitous, to get this to be embedded, I really think this needs to be the option, right? And actually, to go back, like this angers me that we have a bike route and we have a walk route. Yeah. We have an Uber. We have an Uber, for goodness sakes. We have an Uber plugin in our um, Google Maps. Why can we not have an accessibility? It's because we haven't cared enough. It hasn't made enough money. People haven't cared enough. And I think this is a huge opportunity in this like social enterprise venue to actually make a significant difference and to, to take something I genuinely care about and, and kind of try to push it along this continuum, this transformation. 
and my goal of my research here, uh, and I'm so lucky that I can do this, but my goal is to take what I know about smart cities, to take what I know about crowdsourcing, community engagement, mobility studies, my geographic background, um, and really collectively create a barrier-free environment for all. And so what I want to leave you guys with um, is that really you guys will be the leaders of our sustainable and socially just future. Right? Most people have only heard of smart cities as a kind of passing concept, but you guys are really learning about it and understanding it, and I think there's a huge opportunity uh, for this idea of social innovation, uh, and, and even hearing the, the previous talk about opportunities in the city and jobs. Uh, and I think it'll be your job to really kind of push those things that other people aren't necessarily caring about. So. Uh, really, I just want to leave you with how will you make your city smarter uh, and to consider, you know, there, there are so many things along this transformation, along this transect between kind of traditional or non-smart to smart. Uh, and, and there are so many topics. I think accessibility of the built environment uh, is just one of so many that have been, um, haven't, people haven't cared enough about or paid enough attention to. Uh, and I really think it's time to pay attention to that. Thank you. John, John had an unforced question, if that counts. If you were going to plan a transportation map or, or something you were saying, like Google doesn't have this, uh, I would feel, because I'm rather empathetic, I would feel personally responsible if it wasn't up to date, because people are going to plan their day and they make a significant effort to get somewhere and they have to plan. So let's say, one of the things we've been dealing with non-stop this year is the amount of construction we have on campus, which yeah. shifts on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So we have to keep that up to date on the hour, you know, and just it's it's not a realistic possibility. And if you're talking about like a city-wide thing, so one of the things that's we have uh, talked about, but it's also on a on an in-house level, maybe very hard to do is something more like ways, where oh. the user would be able to drop if like there was a block in the route or something like that. But implementing that, keeping that data accurate, presents its own set of challenges. I don't know if you have yeah. any thoughts on transient obstacles are such a huge challenge. But yeah. uh, this is kind of like the whole chicken and egg, not to get too kind of abstract, but. If there's an app like that, I know Access Now even, uh, one of the biggest things with Access Now, uh, when the app came out and we, and we knew, you know, we'd sticker and say access, an accessibility audit's gonna happen. Um, there are so many people who did not want to be that red dot on the map uh, that they employed the stopgap program. Is anybody familiar with stopgap? Basically, it's just a little ramp that they stick at the door. Um, it's just it's simple, it's temporary, uh, but there are a lot of companies, like let's say you go along Young Street in Toronto, um, there's tons in, in um, Montreal too that the whole building, the whole restaurant, the whole shop might be accessible, except for this one kind of gap at the door. So the stop gap program was one of those. So there are so many people who, um, and I wish I had data or some way to, to quantify this, to show this, there are so many people who after contacted the stop gap program because they saw their friends on either side doing it um, and they're like great now we're accessible can you please change our red you know our thumb red thumbs down to a thumbs up we're accessible now 
And so when it comes to this idea of transient obstacles uh, or construction, it's just making people more aware of creating an accessible route. So yes, we'll never have that perfect, but if, if I think that pressure's there, if we're watching and, and you know something could be reported, uh, that people will be more likely to comply to a non-existent federal uh, accessibility uh, legislation. Thanks, Victoria. I thought it was, that was an excellent presentation. Thanks. Um, and it got me thinking, of course, because um, you know there are so many examples of accessibility happening out there. Mm -hmm. um, probably even in Toronto, there are probably seven or eight different you know, examples of, of that taking place. Um, and I start to wonder about you know you've got so many people competing in the space, and the motivations behind you know their creation of these types of tools is often so different. Um, and I think that this question of real-time data is really significant because things change. But at the same time, within the university, a lot of these projects that we initiate and we take up, you know, move mm. on. Yeah. So they end up like these sort of rustic hulks on the beach, you know, stranded, getting more and more redundant as the years go. Yeah, or inaccurate, not just redundant. Well, yeah, mm -hmm. it's absolutely darn right wrong. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, again, no, the devil's advocate here. Should we be investing our time into doing these sorts of projects in the first place? Or should we devote our attention to actually you know, advocating for change amongst the big players, the Wazes and the Google Maps? And, and really, if we don't operate at that level, even the fact that you use you know, the concept of traditional distance, of, you know, well, we've got 4,000 distributions in Toronto, with 37 in, 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 uh, you know, 37 in Calgary, and probably one in Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just indicative of the fact that, that perhaps our ambition is too large, that we should just focus initially on something which we know we can manage, our campus, um, our street, mm -hmm. our city block, um, and not to actually you know, sort of set it as the definitive form of accessibility mapping It's like saying back to your joke, Renee, there are 17 different examples of accessibility maps. They'd like to get them all together the next day. There are 18 different accessibility maps. Uh, I mean, that's pretty common in standards, but um, and, and it's really common actually have accessibility mapping on campus because it's a very contained environment. Um, my role, uh, again, I don't see myself kind of starting any sort of social enterprise. It's the research side of it. Like, how do we, especially as a GIS professional or GI scientist, how do we understand? How do we get to a better understanding of movement and mobility? Um, so tomorrow I'm going to a movement and mobility workshop at Concordia. I just came back from one from Ohio State University, uh, and it's about learning better ways of capturing that type of geographic information. And so I really see that kind of as the research piece and hopefully producing meaningful enough research uh, that it can be adopted and taken up by somebody like Google, right? To become more embedded, to become ubiquitous. 
Uh, and I think that part even, uh, when we think of the, the buildings, we're representing them as points, but really buildings are polygons uh, from a geographic perspective. And that building, I don't know how many of you guys, you know, stood in front of a building before, you have the right address, you got there, but you have no idea where to go. Buildings are big and complicated. They have many entrances. So by saying, yes, just this part is accessible, that's problematic. I think we need to have a more detailed geographic understanding of the doors and what doors are accessible and really moving to a polygon approach to uh, understanding lines. And, and so really, I just see it as a research, you know, like let's get better geographic information that better represents accessibility of our built environment um, that could be turned into a better social enterprise. Does that answer your question? Ish. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Alexandria had her hand up for the others. Okay, I'll just roll with that one. <laughs> okay, I have uh, two quick questions. Uh, the first one, you stated that you were a, a researcher, so what you're looking to do is really get the information out. Um, so my question is, based on the fact that you're doing comparative analysis um, with like a systems mm -hmm. approach, how did you, or how are you selecting your global cities? Because you mentioned that you're doing yeah. north and south. So I guess I was curious, like what what's the baseline then that you're you're using for that to eliminate your? Uh, well, in the smart cities research group, it was basically. 10 of us sitting around saying, hey, who smart cities people do we know? Wait, too many of these are from North America. Let's diversify. It was really kind of unsystematic or unscientific. It was it was a network type thing. And then we just tried to make sure we had good distribution. Okay. And my second question was, in regards to social, social justice with the accessibility, um, I've often heard that you can get more strength in numbers if you uh, kind of like peer or project with other groups that may be facing the same problems. Mm -hmm. um, has anyone identified the fact that um, mothers, for example, or new parents may be a really good help to this? Because double stroller or stroller access is typically, if, if something is wheelchair accessible, I know that I can get my stroller through. Mm -hmm. But when it's not, then I know, oh, it can't. So seeing there's so many that are becoming parents or caregivers going around, again, with smartphones, it sounds like it may be a, like a helpful or useful mm -hmm. initiative to be able to buddy up with yeah. this because then you get more information well, there's parents with strollers, there's an aging population, there are delivery drivers. My partner's a delivery driver. The one day he came home and he's like, oh my gosh, my back hurts so bad. I said, why? He says, I couldn't find a ramp. I had to take the stairs. He said, do you have any sort of solution to like help, find, help me find a ramp? I says, I'm working on it, but I'm not there yet. Uh, but actually, this is the Pinterest model. So the Pinterest, you guys know how Pinterest got so successful? They went, to, they went to leaders of particular communities. So they said, great, we want knitters to, to show us what they knit. So they go to the knitting organization, or I, I don't know anything yeah. about knitting. So you know, they go to the local Stitch and Bitch Club, and they say, hey, you should post this stuff. Like, they really targeted community leaders. This is a really kind of popular strategy in crowdsourcing, is that you target people who care. And then when it reaches that critical mass, it'll extend to most people. I mean, same thing with Airbnb right now. 
now you know most people just understand Airbnb but to get it off the ground uh, nobody wants to be the first person but everybody wants to be the second person so the developers of Airbnb actually said to like friends and other people like hey you have a cool space and you're gonna be gone for a couple weeks do you want to rent it out I'll come over and take photos right so you have this really kind of purposeful almost uh, marketing or sampling strategy uh, very typical of, uh, of research I guess you could say is this uh, working with a purposeful sample who spread it out uh, but yeah those communities are so important and part of it and that need also emphasizes why is this not a thing on Google like why can we not find the accessible route um, if, if it's a need for so many people and again it just it hasn't got enough attention okay last two Nick and then Ian um, so you started off by, by talking about um, by talking about government data and how there's a lack of, of data about accessibility mm -hmm. um, in those government data sets. Um, but you never really came back to that. Um, do you think um, do you think there's uh, okay? Um, obviously not. There isn't a, as much of a mandate in Canadian cities. Mm -hmm. um, to, to be uh, accessible, to provide, um, to have that on accessibility, but in American cities, um, is there, for example, um, do they provide um, data on transient obstacles like construction sites, which, which many cities do provide? Um, does that get thrown into um, other that's about accessibility in U.S. cities. There, is there stuff coming from American mm -hmm. governments that Canadian municipal governments aren't providing? They've had the legislation for, uh, gosh, almost 30 years now, and so uh, it's a different uh, precedent set by the government. Like they, they prioritized um, that early on. Uh, the amount of data, though, there's nothing, there's little pieces here and there. I've checked some open data catalogs. There's uh, random pieces. It's really hard to put transient data obstacles, though. Similar to what John was saying is that, that that obstacle gets moved, right? It gets changed on a regular basis. So that's just something that's not mapped on a regular basis. And I think there's going to be a big challenge of, of, you know, maybe we can get accessible routes of the built environment, the permanently built environment. Uh, I think that's feasible and something that can be done kind of in relatively short order, but the transient obstacles part and keeping that up to date, uh, I think a crowdsourcing piece would have to come in there certainly, but how that gets done, I have no idea. And our last question from Ian. Uh, sorry. That other Ian, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing I considered, uh, but no, they don't have any explicit accessibility information in OpenStreetMap either. That's what I'm saying. Like, how can something that's such a big deal just have not have resonated or have any permanence in kind of this sphere at all? Uh, but I think OpenStreetMap would be the better way to go than maybe some of these proprietary social enterprises who really 
unfortunately have a vested interest in kind of keeping the data to themselves, right? Their, their whole goal is to make the whole world accessible, but this is kind of my data that I need to keep because this is the foundation of my business. Uh, and I think the academic or research perspective is a little different than that. So with that, thanks so much. Thank you.